Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to the Muslim Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything under the sun that affects Muslims, such as faith, local and global politics, social media, sex education, civil rights, and family matters, all coming from a traditional Orthodox perspective. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Assalamu alaikum to the Muslim Matters podcast listeners. We're coming at you during Dhul Hijjah, and we all know about what an immensely blessed time this is and how sacred it is for Muslims. I'm sure all of us are rushing to do as many good deeds as we can think of, and I wanted to share a really special hadith with all of us, which we might have never really considered before. The Prophet ﷺ said in Sahih al-Bukhari, Give food to the hungry, pay a visit to the sick, and release the one in prison. I'm sure many of us have given food to people who are hungry and also visited people who are sick, but what about trying to release someone who's in prison? Well, Muslim Matters in Cage has the perfect opportunity for you this Dhul Hijjah. We've launched our first ever Dhul Hijjah Global Activism Drive, and in this year's drive, we are focusing on closing Guantanamo Bay. This is an initiative to harness the political power of the Muslim Ummah during a very sacred time of year. Muslim Matters is proud to collaborate with CAGE for its inaugural Dhul Hijjah Global Activism Drive. A little bit of information about Guantanamo Bay, in case you are not that familiar with it. Then-President George W. Bush of the United States government opened the Guantanamo Bay Detainment Facility in 2002. It exclusively houses Muslim prisoners and has gained notoriety for its brutal torture of inmates. The U.S. military has continued operating Guantanamo Bay in illegal no-man's land and still exists today over 20 years later. You'll find plenty of educational resources about this issue on Muslim Matters during the Hijjah, so make sure you visit muslimmatters.org daily to learn more about this cause. If you are interested in joining the Dhul Hijjah Global Activism Drive Close Guantanamo this year, then go ahead and go to muslimmatters.org slash Guantanamo, and you will find information on how you can become involved. There are three different levels at which you can get involved in this year's Global Activism Drive Close Guantanamo. So you can go in at the bronze level or the silver level or the gold level, and you can find all of these action plans at muslimmatters.org slash Guantanamo. Examples of things you might be doing is signing a petition to release an Afghani who is suspected to have cancer, and also, for example, donating to CAGE for further advocacy work. Now, Muslim Matters gladly hands over the mic to Cage to take over the rest of this podcast. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Dear brothers and sisters and friends, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And this uh, evening, I welcome you to join Cage to commemorate 20 years since the opening of Guantanamo in this event in which we have gathered brothers uh, from around the world uh, who I will be introducing you 
to very shortly. Uh, this is a very auspicious occasion for all of us. It's the largest gathering of, of, of for the former prisoners in this way in any part of the world. And it's an honor and privilege to be hosting this. Uh, but before we start, I'd like to begin with the recitation of the Quran from our brother Anas, who is joining us remotely. So please, Anas. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Alaikum assalam. لقد كان لكم في رسول الله أسوة حسنة لمن كان يرجو الله واليوم الآخر وذكر الله كثيرا ولما رأى المؤمنون الأحزاب قالوا هذا ما وعدنا الله ورسوله وصدق الله ورسوله وما زادهم إلا إيمانا وتسليما من المؤمنين رجال صدقوا ما عاهدوا الله عليه فمنهم من قضى نحبه ومنهم من ينتظر وما بدلوا تبديلا ليجزي الله الصادقين بصدقهم ويعذب المنافقين إن شاء أو يتوب عليهم إن الله كان غفورا رحيما جزاك الله خيرا uh, thank you, Zakul Khair. Uh, Anas, for that recitation of the Quran, um, which ends with the verses about those who are beloved to Allah, from those who are uh, 
true to their covenant with Allah. And there are those who remained and those who passed away and they didn't change. One iota, I pray that amongst us this evening, we have got people uh, who are part of that caliber, who follow the, the trajectory of that caliber, uh, that they remained true. Um, I have uh, this evening a really stellar uh, group of people. Uh, and uh, I would call them the Nujama or the stars of Guantanamo. Um, and I say this not because I count myself as one of them, but because amongst these uh, brothers are people who've really gone through things that some of you could only imagine. And even if you've read some of the books that they've written or the films they've been in or the interviews they've given or the articles they've written, you can only start to imagine, only imagine uh, what they've been through and what they are here this evening going to try to impart to you will be a snapshot of those between us, between the prisoners here, approximately 70 years have been spent imprisoned in torture, cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment without charge or trial by the world's most powerful and vociferous advocate of freedom, democracy and the rule of law. And we know uh, what that has meant for us. <clears throat> uh, before we start and before I introduce all of the speakers to you, however, I would uh, like if we can just um, uh, play a little uh, um, video that seven of us uh, earlier this year, when President Biden came into power, we wrote an open letter to him asking him to do what the presidents before him have not been able to do, and that is to close Guantanamo. But not only did we do that, we ourselves, between the prisoners themselves, and some of those, some of those are here, um, actually uh, drew a map, an eight-point plan, which describes in simple but easy detail uh, the roadmap to close Guantanamo. So please, if we could just play that, and then I will begin the, the program and introduce our speakers. Seven former Guantanamo prisoners recently got together and wrote an open and strong letter to US President Joe Biden calling on him to close down the Guantanamo prison camp. In the letter, the seven, who are all published authors, presented an eight-point plan to close down the place once and for all. This is what they said. All prisoners cleared for release are allowed to go home as long as it's safe. Those that cannot go home, the office for the special involved must be reopened so that as a suitable country can welcome them. These freedmen must be supported so they can start a meaningful life safe from persecution. The concept of for every prisoner must not exist in a democracy in a country that respects the rule of law. Those who face no charges must be resettled in a safe way or be sent home to their families. Uh, no man should be forced to settle in a country nor should anyone be sent to a, a place where he will face prison again. Closing Guantanamo should be favorite over periodic review board report. The military commissions should be scrapped and those facing charges should have their cases tried in accordance with the law. Those convicted of actual crime should be able to serve their sentences closer to home where possible. In the letter, the prisoners also say that President Bush opened Guantanamo. President Obama promised to close Guantanamo. 
President Trump promised to keep Guantanamo open. So what indeed will be President Biden's legacy with Guantanamo? There's no doubting that Guantanamo is a dark stain on the legacy of the United States of America and how it sees itself. And as such, a defender of human rights, dignity and freedom cannot somehow maintain Guantanamo. It must therefore be closed. Please do like this video, share it, and most importantly, tag in President Joe Biden when you share it. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Goodbye. Brothers uh, and sisters and friends, uh, this uh, we will start our discussion uh, now. Uh, but first, before we do that, let me introduce to you who I have sitting first of all with me here in this studio in London is none other, none other than my good friend and uh, compatriot and comrade and uh, eating partner, uh, Shakir Amr. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And joining us. And of course, Shakir, for those of you who don't know, he originates from, let's get this right, from the Arabian Peninsula and has lived uh, in the UK since the 90s, except, of course, for 14 years uh, when he was held without charge or trial in Guantanamo and became one of the most vociferous advocates for the prisoners uh, there. Joining me also, joining us uh, from Canada, uh, is Omar Khadr. And for those of you who don't know Omar or his story, uh, you have missed out on an absolutely amazing uh, and shocking experience of a person who grew up as a man in Guantanamo and has gone through things that very few of us could ever imagine. But Omar is uh, joining us from, uh, I believe it's uh, Alberta, or was it Edmonton? Edmonton, Alberta. Edmonton, Alberta, right, in Canada. And, and uh, so we are very pleased and very honored to have him here uh, this evening. Uh, I also have joining us <coughs> uh, Mohamedou Walid Salahi, who uh, has been featured in a film recently called The Mauritanian, which some of you may have heard of. Uh, he's currently joining us from uh, uh, sunny Netherlands and uh, is originally, of course, from Mauritania, again, held without charge or trial tortured and abused in Guantanamo for uh, close to 14 years. And he has been on the circuit since his return, uh, running uh, with his feet on the ground immediately, trying to campaign against torture in Guantanamo. We also have uh, with us Omar Dres, somebody who is close to me and was close to me rather when he was here in the UK. He, uh, he campaigned greatly against Guantanamo. He himself is a uh, of Libyan origin, uh, a British resident, and someone who again spent six years in Guantanamo without charge, without trial, and came back to the UK. And uh, we will be talking about what campaign work we did together. Uh, Omar is joining us from uh, Istanbul. Istanbul in Turkey. We also have somebody that you may have seen before uh, with us in CAGE uh, doing events, and that's live from Morocco. Uh, that is uh, Ahmed al-Rashidi, uh, known to those who knew in, him in Guantanamo, uh, friends and foes as the general. We'll be discussing why he's called or was called the general and um, maybe some of his culinary uh, skills. But he's joining us again, as I said, from Morocco. And uh, welcome to you, um, uh, Ahmed. We also have uh, Mansour Daifi, who's joining us from, yes, that fantastically Muslim place, Serbia, um, where he was resettled to in 2016, 
Uh, and Mansour is originally from Yemen and he was sent to this place and has been there uh, campaigning against Guantanamo. We were uh, fortunate for, for him to join us in CAGE last year and he will be talking to us uh, again about his time in Guantanamo, 14 years without charge or trial. So this is our lineup and of course we cannot and must not forget the most important person here, me. No, no, not joking. Clive Stafford-Smith. Who could ever talk about Guantanamo without mentioning Clive Stafford-Smith? I was the first person, I believe, from the prisoners that ever met this man in solitary confinement back in 2004 or five. And when I saw this man, what can I tell you? This man, the only British man that was allowed to campaign for and advocate for prisoners because he was a dual US and uh, British national. And the things that he told me and the things I learned from him and since we've become good friends, uh, we will discuss and bring into But Clive has been campaigning against um, the, uh, the death penalty and Guantanamo uh, and so many other things for the past couple of decades. And uh, we are honored to have him here. Um, now that the introductions are done, let's get into the conversation. So the first thing I'm going to do, and this is for my brothers and sisters uh, don't, do understand this. I don't normally do this with Shaka. We're, we're friends, we're close, but we don't normally in interview or I don't normally interview him. So he's gone out of way, his way to be interviewed, stroke interrogated by me. Um, so the first question I'm going to ask him about is, and I don't know if you know this, I don't know if we've ever discussed this before, right? But when I was in Kandahar, forced brought into Kandahar in prison, and they would brutalizing us, torturing us, they'd stripped us naked and so forth. One soldier, when I was in the interrogation tent, he asked me if I knew you. And I said, I did. And he said, that guy is crazy and amazing. I said, why? He said, because there he was on his knees with his hands behind his back. We just brutalized him. And he's talking to me about Islam. He's making da'wah to me. He's, he's preaching Islam to me and he's in this state. Tell me something about what was in your mind at that time. And do you remember it? Ba'da bismillah wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah alayhi afdal salatu wa salam. A little bit, uh, a brief before that happened, you know. Truly, I was before even I get kidnapped by the Americans because there is a lot of mistakes around the stories of how we got handed over to the Americans, which has to be told. And I think maybe this is a good chance to talk to the people to understand that uh, we have never been caught, as they call it, or uh, legally handed over to the American. It was a true kidnapping operation in the middle of the desert. And it was actually one of the, my happiest kidnapping because I, was, I have been sold uh, three times before I've been kidnapped by the Americans. First of all, I've been uh, sold by the village I was in to the uh, Jalalabad force, which is completely different than the Northern Alliance. Then from there, I've been sold again to the Northern Alliance and moved to Kabul. Then in Kabul, I've been sold again after the Northern Alliance took a, a, a long film about me, you know, admitting that I work with Bin Laden. And that's, that's I guess, why they 
picked me up so fast. I was number five in uh, Bagram. Uh, we were five, five of us, and I was number five. So we were the first people who landed in Bagram. And uh, as I said, I was very happy, actually, when they came in the middle of the desert, because I thought they took us to the desert to shoot us, basically, uh, until I heard the chopper coming down. And then I said, oh, my God, you know, they're going to actually not shoot us. They're going to pick up, pick us up with the chopper. Then they're going to push out of the chopper. Mm. Uh, but when I hear the voices coming from the chopper, which is the American movie style, uh, special forces, you know, move it, move it. Let's go, let's go. And they start surrounding us, literally in the middle of a desert. And I have a big smile on my face. And truly, I had a big smile because, uh, first of all, some of you don't know that I worked with the American Army back in the days in Saudi Arabia as a translator. So I was happy. I said, you know, and they noticed that. They looked at me and they see this smile, even though my face is covered, my, my eyes is covered. They picked me up. They took me to Bagram Airport. Same thing. Um, I have that big smile, you know, because all what's going on in my mind, okay, this is it, you know. Now the American picked me up. They're going to know who I am. I got nothing to do with all that. I'm going to go home. And uh, I took it upon myself, you know, to make sure that these people know that we are, you know, we really, we are here because we are just, you know, normal Muslims. We came here to help in Afghanistan and we got nothing to do with, with what happened to 9-11. But um, unfortunately, I was shocked with the reality that uh, the people I saw in front of me they are totally different than the people I lived with. And I know because I lived in America for a while. So I was really shocked, especially with these young guys. Most of them, they were young guys. And, uh, you know, they always, as uh, we all know, they say we do what, they, what we've been told. So I took it upon myself from that day that I have to explain to these people Islam and I have to talk to them about Islam. And Alhamdulillah, I was very successful. In fact, from the day I've been kidnapped by the American until 2007. I didn't mention the F word to any American. I didn't say nothing bad to them because I took it upon myself that I have to, I have to do my best to explain to these people what they are doing to us is wrong. Even if they are harming us, but still they are doing wrong and they have to correct what they are doing and they have to, you know, they have to treat us like human beings. And uh, I kept calling them to Islam and I kept calling them and giving da'wah, as we call it in Arabic, giving them da'wah and explaining to them this is this is what they are doing is completely inhumane and nobody, no human being can accept the, you know, what they are doing to us. And alhamdulillah, as I said, I was very successful with a lot of them and uh, it eased a lot of my pain there and it eased a lot of the torture because some of them, they do things in front of their, you know, leadership and after that, when they are alone, they try to help us. They try, honestly, they try to grab some food, steal some food for us, pass it to us, you know, because they know what we've been through. So Alhamdulillah, as I said, you know, I kept that goal uh, alive until I left from uh, Guantanamo. And, uh, and as you know, most of you, there is some few of them, they became Muslim and uh, they changed and uh, they knew what they did is wrong. And Alhamdulillah, that's a success from Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala. If, if, if you can make one person, you know, a Muslim, even Clive Smith, you know, I'm trying to be, make him a Muslim since Guantanamo, he knows that. But so far I didn't succeed, but I'm gonna keep crying, trying with him, inshallah. Let's hope you're not crying, but you will be trying. I will be trying, <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Uh,
But Akhi, uh, Omar Dares, next to you, I'm coming to you. Um, I, I'm not sure where to start with you. I wanted to start with, with how we, uh, Omar Dares, sorry. Sorry guys, wrong Omar. Um, is Omar Dares still there? Omar Dares is not there. He's having some problems. Okay, then let's go to Omar Khadr. Let's go to Omar Khadr. Omar, um, <clears throat> your journey of Guantanamo and imprisonment is probably the hardest one that is here for everybody. And, and everybody has faced different difficulties. I first saw you when you turned almost, you were 14, 15, 14, 15 in Bagram, when they brought you in and you were terribly wounded and had been horribly, unbelievably mistreated by uh, the Americans. Um, you were one of several children who became an adult in Guantanamo. I never saw you in Guantanamo, but I heard about you from so many people, including the soldiers. Can you tell me in your words, how, especially that period from when you became, when you were a child and you grew into a man in Guantanamo, can you tell me what, how is that shaped, how's that experience of, of Bagram in particular and your capture and Guantanamo, how has it shaped you as a man that you are today? Uh, it's it's so nice to see uh, all these beautiful uh, people and uh, all the people who are attending. Subhanallah, like uh, this journey, like nobody would would want to have a journey or to spend their youth or to grow up in prison. But Subhanallah, like going through prison, it gave me the opportunity to grow, and it exposed me to a lot of different cultures. I was very malleable when I was younger and uh, but subhanallah like the people I was surrounded by who tried to kind of give me advice and guide me and prison gave me a big opportunity to study my faith because I had nothing else to do so I, I learned about my faith and learned about my identity like before I went to prison I didn't know who I was I had no idea where I wanted to go or when I wanted to be or anything about the future. But this experience, as hard as it might seem, was an amazing experience for me. Uh, it led me to become the person I am. And I am so grateful that Allah has chose me to test me in this way. And I'm very, very thankful that he gave me the strength to, to withstand this trial. And inshallah, coming out of it, a better Muslim and a better human being. Uh, it was it was tough, but subhanAllah, being young gave me the flexibility to, like, I don't know. Uh, I just, from the first day I went to Guantanamo, I just felt like this whole thing was a big game. And I'm just a part of, you know, I have a role to play. And I just played it, played my role. And I didn't try to fight the things that I didn't have control over. Like, I knew this whole thing was a game. And I wasn't going to, like, waste my time fighting it. But what I spent my time is in growing and uh, getting to the place that I am in today. Omar, it's, it's really, really heartwarming to hear from you. And I can tell you that we've had at least, I think, close to 
900 people sign up to to listen to this and they want to hear everybody's voices uh, and yours is definitely one of those one of those that is paramount for amongst them i'm going to come back to you inshallah and speak to you about some more questions i have uh, for you about that um, but i want to go to muhammadu and i want to ask you this question uh, brother muhammadu you know we we've seen in in uh, that you've suffered uh under the enhanced interrogation technique programs, uh, the severe torture, the beatings, the isolation, the stress positions, uh, broken bones, simulated drowning, all of that stuff, which is very difficult for any, any human being to, to, to endure, let alone endure it within 14, a period of 14 years detained without charge or trial. Um, but I want to ask you, and it may be hard, but I want to ask you, that was done to you physically. Can you explain to me mentally what it did to you and how did you as everybody clearly did to some degree how did you overcome it so i agree with you uh, the most important person in this setting is uh, our brother clive uh, i don't know whether he remembers this i'm sure he does that he visited my mother in Mauritania, my mother that I never got to see again. And uh, he came to our house and we didn't have electricity. You know, we lived in a part of the town that uh, was not uh, uh, as developed as the rest of uh, the capital. And he made some very grainy uh, footage that I saw many years later on. And I just want to say uh, to him, thank you so much for doing that. Jazakallah khairan, as we say in, in our culture. Just another way to say thank you very much. And uh, to come to your question, I'm really happy to reunite with uh, this uh, you know, <clears throat> group of my brothers and my uh, comrades in Ibtila. Uh, in the um, trial that we went through in Guantanamo Bay and other places. And uh, I'm very humbled to be with them. And I don't think I really, uh, I think we all were tortured in Guantanamo Bay. And I, I like, I, I saw this like, at first I didn't believe Americans would, <laughs> uh, Torture me to echo what uh, my brother Shakir said. I grew up not as a translator in Saudi Arabia, but I grew up watching married with children, and uh, and uh, law and order. So I thought I had this image about Americans. They are funny, humorous, and they respect the rule of law. I was in for a very big surprise, as it were and uh, I remember the first day I heard about torture I was in Lima Black I was with uh, Omar Omar was with us he came from isolation to us in Lima Black I don't know whether he remembers this and uh, and uh, there was Saudi from uh, Yemen uh, from uh, from Medina and he came back and he was very shocked. And he was talking about sexual assault. And I'm saying this 
you know, just for the sake of clarity and to tell you how stupid I was. Then I looked at a Tunisian, uh, a Tunisian brother beside me. I said, what does sexual assault mean? And then he said, yeah, that's a woman comes, you know, onto you. I said, so what? And then I was so stupid. And then subhanallah, Allah had shown me that sexual assault is really, really very devastating and very bad and very horrific. And, uh, you know, when it came uh, to that, you know, and I really don't want to go into all the details because everybody here, everybody here in this setting was tortured in Guantanamo Bay, to my knowledge and to the information I have. And uh, we all, uh, you know, just don't want this to be repeated, at least from my point of view. I think that people from uh, Africa and from the Middle East deserve the same human rights as everybody else. When America set out in this endeavor, what they call war and terror, I would say two things. First, you know, dividing human beings between those who deserve the rule of law and those who don't is fascism, actually. You know, and America is saying that it is a democracy. And I never understand why country like yours and Shaker, the UK, why they support the United States when the United States said UK citizens don't deserve the rule of law. I, don't, I never understand this. Why should my country, Mauritania, support the US when the US said we don't deserve the rule of law? And I'm here to listen. I really don't want to talk too much. I pass. That's very kind of you because it really brings me on to the next question and the next person that I want to uh, to talk about. But we, we do want to, I will come back to you again about different things. Um, but it brings me back to my friend, my def uh, defender, and uh, somebody we've all said is, is, is central to this. Though he wasn't a prisoner, he saw us all as prisoners, or most of us as prisoners, and still sees prisoners. And that is uh, Clive Stafford-Smith, who is joining us from all the way, I mean, I know some of you in Serbia, some in Morocco, some in Canada, but he's joining us from Dorset. <laughs> and um, so Clive, <clears throat> when I first met Clive, so you guys all, all understand, when I first met Clive, it was through letter, by way of letter, uh, and I was introduced to Clive by this letter and, and said, it's, it's, it assured me, you're in good hands because you're going to be represented by a lawyer who's been working on death row cases for the past 20 years. When I saw death row and 20 years, I thought, that's it, I'm finished. <laughs> How, what is this guy gonna come to represent me for? What I've done, I've not done anything. So when he came, when you came, Clive, I'd already had that kind of you know, introduction to you. Um, but there was something that you said, based on being a lawyer for all of these years, you came to this black hole of Guantanamo and you said that the law, to paraphrase, is not going to work here. We need to embarrass them. How different, Clive, was Guantanamo, your first day, your first step in Guantanamo back in 2004, I think it was, from anything that you'd ever seen in the worst of the legal cases you've dealt with in the United States of America, or how similar was it? Well, Muslim, uh, let me say this first. I'm certainly not the most important person here. And, you know, I've only ever been abused um, by Shaka, not by anyone else. I mean, it's, uh, I've had it very easy, really. 
Um, but it is an immense privilege to be among such old friends. And I, if I may, I'm sorry, I'm not going to answer your question until I've just ticked off a few hellos. Mohammed, that was very sweet of you to say that about your mom. One of the things that I think I found so much with everyone in Guantanamo was the empathy. You know, Mohamedou, the day after I saw your mother and filmed that thing, my father died when I was there in uh, Mauritania. And so, you know, just as you have that difficult time being away from your mom, uh, I was down there when my dad died and it's something I'll never forget. Just quickly with the others, um, Omar Dugay is my favorite lawyer in Guantanamo. You know, Omar Khader, it's lovely to see him now, all grown up and all that stuff. You know, Ahmed, the general, we'll get to that. I want to hear what Ahmed says about being the general, because I've got a few stories about that. And Mansour, I hope everyone reads the really good piece in the Washington Post yesterday about you, Mansour, and about Hisham Sliti, one of my other old-time clients who I haven't seen for a while. Um, but as all, you guys have been the heroes because of what Mosem said in the end. What Guantanamo was about was not about the law, it's not about the lawyers. It's about embarrassing my government because we'd committed such a tremendous, um, oh, it was awful. I don't, you know, I give up trying to come up with words to explain how dreadful it was. Uh, in answer, ultimately, I know you know this, most finally lawyers get around to answering, answering the question um, about Guantanamo. There was one way in which it was absolutely the same as all the Guantanamo cases, all the death penalty cases. And I'd done about 300 death cases at that point. And that's that uh, we in America had the death penalty because we had big problems. We have a big crime rate. We have you know, 300 million guns. Uh, we have all sorts of drug problems, all sorts of other problems. And what we would do with the death penalty, and this last year, we executed 15 people out of 35,000 homicides uh, because a few people pretend that killing a few African-American men is going to somehow solve the complicated problems of the world. And in that sense, Guantanamo was the same thing, that we would put a whole bunch, 780 Muslim men, who are not American. You couldn't be American if you want to be a prisoner in Guantanamo because then we'd have to give you the same rights as we give Americans. Um, we put you there so we can pretend that somehow we're doing something in this much vaunted war on terror, or as Borat calls it, the war of terror. Um, and, you know, it's just disgusting. And I, I said probably to you, Mosin, but I certainly said it to Omar Degas, um, that Actually, my African-American clients on death row were the bizarre beneficiaries of Guantanamo Bay because we as Americans had decided we hated you. Um, people I consider my, my good friends, um, that includes you, Shaka, I want you to know, um, that, that we hated you guys more than we hated African-American youth uh, in America. And to that extent, the death penalty started dying out in the United States. But the other side of it was, I remember with you, Mosem, I sat down and we spent those three days writing up the ways that you had been abused and also writing up, you know, the psychological problems you had and the fact you had witnessed that poor guy getting murdered in Bagram. And I went back to, we weren't allowed, as you all know, but perhaps some people don't, Whatever you guys told me was secret. It was a national security threat. 
So I wasn't allowed to reveal any of that to the world until it had gone through the census. And I remember sitting in the secret facility in Washington. And if I tell you where that is, I'll have to kill you. Um, and I was sitting there with Joe Margulis and I had a 30 page thing that I had typed out of what Mosem had told me and they'd censored every single word. And I asked the guy um, who was the censor there, I said, you know, what are you censoring this stuff for? And he said, oh, you know, it's the methods and means of interrogation. <laughs> I said, yeah, you're telling me that all the stuff that I wrote out about Mosin being tortured is that. And are you telling me that murdering someone is a method of interrogation? They just sort of smirked at me. And then I said, well, what about the stuff about what Mosin suffering psychologically from post-traumatic stress disorder and all that? Oh, well, you know, we're protecting his privacy. We can't let that out. And I said, he wants it out. And, you know, it was just one of those things. And this was a good illustration of how, in the end, we've had to work together. And, you know, on this discussion, as some of my greatest allies, you know, if only they hadn't let Shaka out, he'd still be there and we'd still be fighting together in Guantanamo, which was one of my great joys. Because just as he was trying to convert me to Islam, writing a socialist outside, and he used to complain that I was making him a lefty but you know we had to get that information out to the world so the world knew what was happening to all of you and to do that was a big old battle it was quite fun that one i wrote a letter to tony blair that said dear tony you know we're mates um at the top it said in ray torture of a british national and then it detailed for two pages what was going on for Mosman. and then the last sentence was Anything that the censors have taken out of this means your friends, the Americans, don't want you to know about the torture that's going on here, loved life. And they censored the whole thing except the first sentence and the last sentence. And we published that on the front page of the British newspapers. And I think that was one of the early times that people began to see the total horror, I mean, real horror, um, because... The real answer to your question, Mosin, is it never occurred to me I'd ever have to talk to someone about how my country was torturing them. And for that, I can only apologize to all of you and everyone who's been touched by this, because what we've done to, to you is just horrible. And there's nothing that can be said that's enough of an apology. Thank you, Clive, for that. Um, you don't have to apologize for something you didn't do. Now, if you were involved in some way in the rendition program that we don't know about, that's a different matter. And we'll be sending, we'll be sending the boys to come and see you. Um, but otherwise, you, you're, you're off the hook. Um, but sticking with law and lawyers, um, we have uh, somebody who studied law before he was sent to Guantanamo as a prisoner. And he endured and encountered uh, torture. He lost his eye. He um, was held in the same atrocious conditions as, as, as everyone else. Um, and that is Omar Dres. Omar Dres has been somebody that uh, I was there the day when he returned to the UK to court and we were campaigning for him in Brighton. There was a massive campaign for him um, himself. But Omar, tell me something, please. As, as somebody who studied the law, as somebody who kind of understood at least to some degree where maybe others didn't, yeah. as a prisoner yourself, how did you view and how did you deal with the fact that you were being abused by these people about whom you'd studied the law, both Britain and America? Yeah, definitely. First, I, I want to, the same thing to salute everyone who is uh, my formidable friends and brothers and uh, comrades. 
and of course definitely the main lawyer like uh, he's, he's a school in himself i learned a lot from clive inside prison and from all these interrogations that we went through and so on that more than any book we've read or we studied at the uh, university in london or in wolverhampton others feel otherwise uh, it's been a big pleasure to meet all of you at this stage and uh, yeah uh, speaking about guantanamo I, I was thinking when I came to this interview, I was just revising in my head what happened to us. And I know the most famous stories was uh, when my eyes was uh, an officer and the guard tried to gouge my eyes out, one, both of eyes. And then permanently I, I lost the sight in one of my eyes. But uh, there were different other stages and they are all as bad as uh, Guantanamo is not being is being normalized and many people don't realize what went on in Guantanamo. I remember like for example, the two stages, I nearly lost my mind completely where I, I was uh, beaten and then on the floor in, in uh, background for more than 50 days uh, without food, without uh, water, for little water I think. And then I started to hear voices inside my head that started to lose my head completely. I think I was think fearing for my complete sanity. I was gonna go crazy. There's another stage where when we were thrown inside the plane together, bundled, and then I had malaria and I was really in bad condition, and uh, my weakness without food, without this. And then again, uh, you know, they had they had the system where they, they made you, uh, you covered your eyes, covered your hearing completely, and then tried to lose your senses, you know, according to a, a study they had in Canada or something, psychologists studied if if you do this to you, they, and they succeeded, they did this, and then they threw us inside the prison. And I remember again, inside the plane, uh, that, that long journey, I lost completely my mind. I started hallucinating and uh, uh, seeing things inside the plane, seeing things in my mind, and I completely lost my mind, I think. So uh, these stages and these things that did happen, they're really, uh, really unusual, very unusual for anyone, uh, somebody who studied law or otherwise. And, uh, the thing about Guantanamo is that people, I think, don't realize that what went on in Guantanamo. Guantanamo is a really bad, is really bad prison. Not like the, the normalization of Guantanamo that people start to think it's a normal prison, it's just a prison and it's, it's it suits us, it serves us where the Muslims are kept away in danger, under danger and so on. But no, Guantanamo is really a prison like any uh, Nazi concentration camp in Germany or Alcatraz, for example. Or the Devil's Islands or the French Guiana, uh, Papillon, if you remember the film. This is something that has to be somewhere there, up there, or this really should be closed down because of what went on into them. And because of Guantanamo, I think uh, China was able to do what it's doing now in for, against the Muslims. It's legalized all these acts like the Chinese are doing. They 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 are using the same the same uh, the same argument or the same an analogy like these Muslims are bad, they're extreme, we don't have to put any trials, they, they should be kept in camps and we are trying to brainwash them, change their minds. The things that are happening to Muslims in India recently, the things how, how Guantanamo was used by Gaddafi and Mubarak and Bin Ali and all these dogs who uh, the Arab countries of uh, not rid of, they all use the same mythology like all these extremist Muslims they claim, uh, deserve what they get in accordance with what uh, America uh, the, the country which which uh, which claims to be the country of freedoms and laws and so on has set up uh, Guantanamo as an example. So that's why I think 
It's very important that we stress this, that Guantanamo is not a normal prison. It's like the Robben Islands in, in, in South Africa. It's horrible prison and has to be closed down. Uh, thank you, Omar. Thank you, Omar. Khair. That's uh, very. Uh, it's really good that you put those contexts together and connected it to uh, the wider uh, Islamophobia at state level that we are seeing, as you said, in China and beyond. And people have actually justified the treatment of Muslim prisoners around the world on mass uh, using Guantanamo as the experimentation. Uh, place. Uh, so, so thank you for making that point. Uh, I want to go next to our dear, uh, dear, dear beloved brother Ahmed al-Rashidi. Ahmed al-Rashidi is a very special brother because he's um, somebody that I, I didn't see him. I never saw you, Ahmed. I, I never met you uh, in Guantanamo, but I knew about you and I, I'd heard of you from the other soldiers. And I'd sometimes every now and then pick up your voice just from a distance, though we were in, a, in Camp Echo. And of course, you had earned the title um, uh, the General, and uh, you have a book entitled The General also. And the prisoners, they felt that the soldiers would say about you um, that you are a, 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 a campaigner, a leader, and so forth. And they, that title, you had that title. Now, what is it? Why would they make somebody who is a chef back in the UK make him into a general? How did that happen? Exactly. Um, you know, a cook in London, from being a cook in London to become a general or the general uh, in the worst place on earth, in Guantanamo, you know. Lucky me, of course, you know, I mean, a cook has become a general in, in no time. Yeah, you know, that, that title really caused me a lot of pain. Uh, I paid a very high price because of that title. Uh, and that shows the reality of, of, of the so-called war on terror. I mean, how come a cook in London becomes a general in, in Guantanamo? And when you say a general in Guantanamo, that means it's the highest ranking of so-called terrorist and the worst of the worst and of course that makes me the head of the worst of the worst um, and it happens uh, during I think I was with Omar the guys in one of the uh, isolation blocks we were in the middle of organizing a protest as usual and um, two guards came into my cell and they said you are wanted by the interrogator. They took me there. And then I realized that we have been monitored, of course. Um, they took me to the interrogator. And after they shackled me down to the floor, uh, the interrogator came in. And he was wearing uh, an army uniform. And he looked at me in the eyes. And he put his both of his hands on my knees, and he said to me, "I'm here. I was sent to you by the colonel." And I was, I was, what? He says, "I've got a message for you." I said, he says, "Get off the stage." 
then I realized that all our conversation back in isolation block regarding the um, the protest was monitored. So I said, get off the stage before you get hurt. And, you know, and he went on to say, you are under the spotlight. Get off the stage before you get hurt. And he keeps repeating these words. Get off the stage and you're going to get hurt and you're under the spotlight. And really, I got scared, you know, because I found myself, here I am, hooked, chained to the floor, in the middle of nowhere, in Guantanamo, in a remote island in, in the middle of nowhere, and in, inside the iron grip of the most powerful army in the world, you know. So I was really scared. But I didn't want to show him that I was scared. So after he took me back to, uh, to my cell, to the isolation block, I found my, my friends were waiting for me so that we can continue our discussion, discussion uh, regarding the protest. So I said to them, look, I can't talk for now. You know, I need some rest. But we'll continue the discussion tomorrow morning. I needed to some time to think about the situation because you know if it's if, you know I got afraid, I got a threat from the, the U.S. Army. You know, I mean, and I felt I was alone. You know, nobody could help me there. So I said, I need to think about it. So I spent the night thinking about the issue. You know, what I mean, what shall I do? You know, shall I stop? continue with the protest and defending ourselves, protesting our innocence, protesting that, trying to tell the Americans that we are human beings, so you have to treat us with some humanity and respect, or should I just quit and uh, save myself? So in the morning, after I prayed to God and I said, please God, guide me, what shall I do in this situation? In the morning, I woke up and I felt, you know, different, you know, I, I was no longer scared. I woke up with a different mood, I was no longer scared. So I told my friends in, uh, in isolation block, you know what, we're going to continue our protest, let's do it. And Omar uh, he was with me then. So. Straight away, they came and they picked me up and they removed me from that cell block and they took me away uh, to another cell block. And uh, the brothers behind uh, on the isolation block, they started protesting. They wanted to make sure that I was safe, that I was okay. So they sent all my other guys to visit me in that remote isolated camp, uh, sorry, uh, cell block that I was in by myself. So he came to visit me and with two guards. And he says, are you okay? And I told him, I said, yes, I'm okay. You know, as soon as he left, he took me to, to the interrogation room, you know what I mean? And he started 23 days of um, punishment. At first it wasn't, first it was like intimidation. They would take me there at night and they would bring this big, uh, uh, big offices with the, like bodybuilders with the big men and they were verbally you know, intimidating me for like three days and after that 
this started the real torture and this it went on for like 23 days uh and that's and that's how the the the, the nickname the general came it came with the price full very moving story and uh, i know that everybody that resisted everybody that tried to fight back in whatever way they could had to pay a, a huge price so may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept that from you um, um, i want to go to mansoor uh, who's joining us from sunny serbia um, and mansoor as someone you know you, you're obviously now you're part of cage you're part of the guantanamo um, uh, um, project and head the guantanamo project but as someone who grew up and, and when i read this in your book uh, don't forget us here uh, you grew up in a small village in Yemen where there was, like Mahamudu had said, no electricity, no, none of the modern amenities that you would uh, normally expect in any place. When you went to the main city, I think in Sana'a or, or Aden, uh, you, 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 uh, you spoke about how as a child you, were, you saw just lights everywhere and you were fascinated by these lights while everybody would just normal and, and they saw this kid running around after these lights. Tell me from that, from that experience as you grew up to the, to Guantanamo, most of the prisoners here, majority the, other than Shaka, who Shaka is always the, the, the odd one out, but most of us had not been to Guantanamo, to, to America, even as a Briton, I'd never been to America, but America had come to us and showed us a, a face of it. Contrast that, your experience as a child in Yemen who barely has electricity to somebody who is now in the hands of the most powerful nation in the world, how, how did you react to it? First of all, salam alaikum and my salam and regards to the brothers. First of all, <laughs> I would like to, to take the brothers to, uh, to a moment at uh, Guantanamo and also the, uh, the viewers. So I'm going to sing a song that we used to song all of us at Guantanamo for each other. I think their brothers know this song well. well. Uh, so I would like to st start with this uh, song. <clears throat> so forgive my voice. I didn't have like a great uh, voice. So I would say, Haba, Haba, Bilija, Bilija, Yamar Haba, Bilija, Bilija, Haba, Haba, Bilija, Bilija, Yamar Haba. Basically, this is the song we used to sing song at Guantanamo for each other. When we someone arrived or someone back from the interrogation, or especially the brothers who arrived new at Guantanamo, when they first arrived hooded, shackled, when they heard the song, they thought, what? Are they in summer camp or something? So this was the song at, uh, this is one of the moments of uh, Guantanamo. I would like also to thank my brother, Shakir. He was one of the most outstanding uh, person who really helped us a lot to survive at Guantanamo, who played a major role in the uh, in fighting the torture and inhuman treatment and the injustice at Guantanamo. Because at Guantanamo, most of us were young. We had no idea. As, as I said, I, I grew up in a uh, rural uh, village in Raima, in the mountain. No electricity, no running water. When we go to school, we have to like walk at least uh, 10 miles back and forth. So I ended up in Sana'a, then I went to a research to Afghanistan, then sold to Americans. You know, we had, and even in Yemen, we didn't know what America even is. Like when we heard about like 110 towers playing, had like, 
okay, we had like 25 floors in Yemen. So <laughs> we looked at Americans through Guantanamo. I'm sorry, this is how we look at them. Torture, abuse, uh, you know, inhuman treatment, you know, uh, abuse, uh, uh, everything. And Americans, unfortunately, look at Muslims through 9-11 scope. And this is the problem. They put us in a position to look at them that way. You know, imagine a boy end up like 19 years old at Guantanamo being treated as like, I wasn't the worst who get treated. Also, I think Shakir and brother Ahmed, and they get their uh, share because also they were appointed like as uh, who tried to resist, who tried also to uh, to fight the inhuman in, in and torture within the detention. And that was a problem, especially when General Jeffrey Miller arrived at Guantanamo by 2002, and we all know who is General Jeffrey Miller. He's the one who started constructing enhanced interrogation technique or enhanced uh, torture technique. So basically, he viewed those uh, brothers as a threat. I think Shakir and the rest, their vote, their photos was hung up in their <laughs> in his uh, office. So basically, as young, I mean, we started at Guantanamo constructing this idea about America. This is this America. I remember one of the brothers, uh, Bishop Rawi. When he arrived at Guantanamo, he said, no, this is not America. Things will be better. It takes him only a few years to find out this is this is what America is about. And this is how we shaped our ideas and America and, and, and thoughts about uh, uh, from that place. Because that was what such places did, you know, uh, like uh, Guantanamo. And I would like to just give a small brief, uh, brief to Guantanamo. As you know, Guantanamo housed around 800 uh, brothers. Uh, 50 nationalities, uh, at least over 20 languages spoken. The youngest detainee was only a few months old. The, the oldest was 105 years old. Those men weren't in the battlefield holding guns or uh, shouting slogans against the state. They were brought from different parts of the world, from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, uh, United Arab Emirates, from Mauritania, from Bosnia, from Africa. You know, the, and according to um, Seton Hall University report at ACLU that 86% of the prisoners were either a mistaken identity or sold for bounty money. This report was by the American institutes. So basically, basically this is just the introduction to uh, Guantanamo as how the impact at Meadasa. We struggle, you know, because we end up in a place we have no idea where we were or why or until when. And everything kept changing. Everything kept changing over and over uh, again. Jazakallah khair, Mansoor, for that uh, explanation. Uh, it's, it's again hard to think because, you, like you say rightly, people from 45, 50 different countries came to this place and saw a face of America they could not even imagine uh, even existed. Even those who, those who had some idea of America um, hadn't. But you've mentioned Shakir a few times and it's only right that we go to him now because I knew him before. I knew Shakir well before we lived in the same house in Afghanistan together. We shared jokes, we shared uh, experiences. I knew him quite well, but I never knew him to be a professor at all. I never thought that this guy is... Uh, <laughs> I didn't think that he was a teacher, let alone a professor. So something happened in Guantanamo and people started to come along and tell me and ask me not they used to say shakir before but then they started to say do you know the professor and just in the same way as uh, ahmed al-rashidi had earned a title the general how the heck how the heck did you become a professor okay you know bhds man three <laughs> four of them <laughs> 
Actually, Clive can answer you that because once you spend 14 years there, almost 15 years, I think you accumulate more than one PhD. Yeah. But the truth about the truth about the names, we have to understand that the Americans they are very crafty when it comes to giving names. And uh, just like Ahmed, mashallah, he told you, you know, there is a price for everything. Okay, in, in, in very basic way of answering that questions, Ahmed, mashallah, as uh, I remember him, he, he was mostly into resisting physically. A lot of the things that Ahmed tried to do is, you know, to let them know that we are not weak, we are strong, we can do things, we can change things. From my side, I try to reach to them, to talk to them. So basically, the way they looked at us, they looked at Ahmed as somebody who is really a general, as like a military general, a man who will give order, people will listen to him, and they will do things. And the way they looked at me, that the man he's trying to reach us, reach us talk to us, act smart with us, to get, you know, to get to where he wants. So basic, basically, one part of, of the movement is, of, if we can call it a movement, that, you know, talk to them, politics, try to deal with them, you know. And the other part, show them how powerful we are, how forceful we can be. Which is, it did happen that we showed them how forceful we are. But the reality, like I said, about the names, not because we fit those names. Well, I, I do not fit the description of a professor. I do not. And this is not to humble myself. Alhamdulillah, I gain a lot of knowledge by traveling. I've been traveling. I've been mixing since I was a little kid, you know. I mean, literally since I was a little kid. I lived in an area where in Medina, next to, uh, next to uh, the Prophet Mosque, and, uh, you know, we used to mix with the, with the pilgrimage. I mean, I've seen, basically, I've seen all kind of citizenship, you know, from the whole world. And we learned from them and we spoke a little bit of different languages. That's, that's one of the legion, how accumulated the knowledge I have. But for them to hit you so hard, for them to make it look like it's normal, this person to get punished that bad, they have to make you big-headed, you know. So basically what they try to show the world that, hey, we got people with so much knowledge, we got people with brain that they think and they try to organize things inside. And uh, if I don't mistake, one of, the, one of the generals in Guantanamo, he said two-thirds of fighting terrorism and fighting the war on terrorism it's in Guantanamo, not in Iraq, not in, in Afghanistan, in Guantanamo. Because the effect of Guantanamo on the American was very great, you know, it wasn't that easy. What happened there and the news that came out of there by the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first, and secondly by the lawyers and Clive, one of them, because as everybody knows, Clive did not look, and that's the truth about Clive, and I love to emphasize on this, Clive never looked at Guantanamo as a legal case. And this is the first thing he will talk to you when he meets you. I don't know, you meet me first, you meet Ma'adam first, I'm not sure. But it's, it's, for him, it was, it, was, it was media. It was explaining to the world what these people are doing, why they are horrible, why this place has to be closed. Not through court and judges and all that. He never believed in that. He knew that's the only way people can get out. And basically, exactly that's what happened. 
So we back again to the to the point where is giving names, and this is not me, just an Ahmed. There's other people they've been called names. Why? Because they want to harm you as much as they can with finding the legal means of doing it and make people believe that there is organized and they call us, you know, this is Al-Qaeda agenda, these people belong to the Qaeda, this guy is that, this guy is that, and and basically that's why we spend most of our life in Guantanamo in isolation. I mean, out of the 14 and a half years or 15 years, maybe 10, 10 years I was isolated. More than 10 years I was isolated. Uh, Abu Imran, which is Ahmed, the same thing, you know, he found himself isolated in so many places, you know, so many different uh, camps. There, there's one thing I just want to quickly ask you. There's a, in, in the New York Times, um, there's, a, there's an article written called The ba Battle for Guantanamo in which uh, General bon, uh, Colonel Bumgarner bon yes. walks with you after you were released from uh, isolation for quite some time for maybe a year or longer yeah and he said and i quote he said it was like walking when he when bon jovi the, yeah like walking <laughs> on stage with bon jovi because of all the grown men were shouting and crying and and what uh, was what quickly if you can quickly because i want to go to the others uh actually it was it was a it was a very happy day that day because after uh, a very long very long hunger strike uh basically i lost more than half of my weight I weighed at that time 52 kilos, which for someone like me, 52 kilos is. So when he came to me in the end and he said, okay, we're going to do everything you want, you know, we're going to give you your humanity, we're going to give you food, we're going to give you, you know, medication, we're going to try to solve your problems, we're going to uh, talk to the guards, they're going to start treating you differently. Then, you know, he came to the hospital and picked me up. And he started walking with me in the blocks to show that, you know, and actually with no handcuffs, nothing, just like a normal human being. No shackles at all. No shackles, which nothing. Which is really yes, unusual for God. Which is very unusual. And uh, when the brothers saw me, they couldn't, some of them, wallahi, they couldn't even recognize me. So when other people recognize me and they say my name, uh, you know, people start crying. And, uh, you know, I try to be, you know, try to make him feel good and try to make him feel like, look, we did something after all that hunger strike. So he, I opened the, something called a bean hole. So I opened the bean hole to shake their hands. But the brothers, subhanAllah, they grabbed my hand and they start bullying it inside, kissing it. And I'm going to start, what's wrong with these guys? When Bam Gardner saw that, it was shocking for him. What, what's going on? Why are people kissing his hand, you know, for? He doesn't understand it's out of respect, you know? And out of what they've seen me right. look like. But in the Western tradition, that's like the godfather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's why he said when he was walking in the blocks, he was like, you know, Bon Jovi, you know, everybody screaming, crying and kissing his hand. But he doesn't understand this all out of love and respect. That's, that's all. Um, Omar, Omar Khadr, I want to go to you, uh, Akhi, and, uh, and ask you, um, you were obviously there as, as a young man, you were growing up and there were particular people who kind of took you under their wing and started to assist you and, and different prisoners have done, you know, you had different inter interaction with different prisoners. Can, can you tell me, just maybe a couple of those guys, uh, what, you, you know, you're, you're a child growing up amongst all of these adults. Um, did, did, were there any particular individuals or, or, or people who you were attached to and became like your mentors, your teachers, your guides? And if so, what were the specific qualities about them that you, that you 
that you uh, sort of internalized? Well, there's a lot of people and uh, subhanAllah, like it's, it's not always the people you're around that influence you the most. It's the people's actions and um, I think I'm not gonna name any names, but uh, describe them to us. You don't have to, to name who they were. Well, one yeah. of them is 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 on this meeting. He knows himself. Uh, but uh, a lot of people uh, influenced me because the things that had influenced me and left a huge mark in me is the culture. Like I came. You know, I was young. I didn't really have, I wasn't developed. And I had a lot of, before I went to, to Guantanamo, I had a lot of uh, an inferiority complex towards, you know, just the developed world. I just, you know, I thought everything cool was in the West. Everything amazing was in the West. Uh, and that was very deep in me for, for, you know, maybe because we are living in, in hardships in Afghanistan, but that was in me. But when I came to Afghanistan and I saw the quality of people, their care, their empathy, their devotion, their 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 honesty, um, and their humanity, like I saw a lot of qualities that I've never really considered or seen before, and that was. That has, until now, I think was one of the biggest influencers in my life. It gave me such a strong sense of identity. And that's one of the things that I hold very, very dearly. Because I just feel like this this war of terror after 9-11, it was, they, they, they say they were after people who were, they wanted to hold people responsible. But... When I look at Guantanamo 20 years later, uh, later, I see that the targets were people who had identity and it was to steal their identity. It was to steal their faith. It was to break them. Uh, it was to make them ashamed of who they are. Not knowing that putting us all in that place gave us a lot of time to grow and to learn about ourselves and to learn about our faith and to, to learn and to take the best that each of us had to offer. And uh, it was... It was Let me just follow up on that. That's Jazakallah Khair. It's very, it's very, very um, in, in, insightful, insightful. But can you tell me then, was there something, can you give me an example of any attempts there were from the authorities there to break your identity? Your identity as, as who you are as a Muslim, as to, to where well, you're trying to build your identity, but there's something happening here that's trying to break your identity. Well, uh, in Guantanamo, uh, there was a period of time where uh, they considered me not cooperating. And one of the biggest things for them was to take all reading materials from me. Um, and they knew that, I, you know, it's not that they didn't know. They knew that I was young and that I'm growing. And they found that as a very, very important thing to do. And the thing is, like, Guantanamo is not only connected to the United States. Like, Canada is also involved uh, in that, too. When I came back to Canada and I was uh, released on bail, one of the bail conditions were that I was not allowed 
to speak my mother language with my family. I was not allowed to speak Arabic with my family. And, you know, the last time this happened was with the Aboriginals where they were, they considered their culture as something that was, you know, bad and that they needed to change. Um, so, you know, it's just, you know, stuff like that, but um, yeah, dealing with the, with the guys there and dealing and subhanAllah being isolated and being deprived of all of that, that material stuff has given me the opportunity to learn, to listen to, uh, to everybody who's around me, everybody who was older than me, I got to learn a lot. And, uh, you know, I learned good things and I learned bad things. And as I d grew and developed, I, you know, stuck, hopefully I stuck with the good things. I know Shakir uh, has his reservations about uh, things that I do right now. We'll, we'll not get into that. The moment. Jazakallah khair. Thank you very much, Akhi. Um, Muhammadu, we, we've obviously known through your film and so forth all, all, all the the depth and the detail of your story and, and your book. But something that we, we didn't really see in the film at all, well, there's two things. I, I noticed two things. One is impossible, actually. It's impossible to tell the, the length of time and to kind of get a sense of the length of time in any film because it's in, you know, in a, a two hours at most. But the thing that I really wanted to kind of explore slightly with you was your relationship and, and feelings and connections to, to other prisoners and who, if any, you don't have to name them, but characters of how they helped you in any period of time where you were not in isolation or even when you were. First, I just want to tell you that I'm really enjoying this conversation. And I enjoy much more listening to my brothers and comrades in the, these trials than speaking myself. Now, I just, uh, before I answer the question, I want to uh, just uh, follow on what uh, Omar said. For instance, in isolation, I was not allowed to pray. Prayer was forbidden. They would come to my cell and force me to stop the prayer violently. Uh, fasting was not allowed. They would come and feed me forcefully during Ramadan. And uh, thank God this happened only for one year. And, uh, and uh, so most of my time I was in isolation. Like I spent 15 years a little bit over 15 years in prison, including in Jordan and in Bagram. And I stayed about one and a half year, two, two years with other people. And, uh, <clears throat> and of course, like I remember the song, you know, that sent chills up my spines, you know, and uh, we were singing all in the block and that really irritated the, the JTF people, that is for the people of the Joint Task Force. And uh, like this, Haba Haba Bilija, and then, oh, this is Sijinu Jannatun Wanaru, and El 
to apartheid and he said something very very profound about Guantanamo and he said this is being used to deny people their basic rights as was done to the people in South Africa under the apartheid regime and we all know apartheid was evil uh, personified but he also said something very very profound he said this label of terrorism you need to be very careful where you throw it because Nelson Mandela was called a terrorist and he was imprisoned for 27 years because he believed in resisting physically um, uh, apartheid. And of course now uh, those same people who's, who wanted him to be executed and thrown into prison uh, now kind of uh, sing his praises and so forth. And we see statues of him outside parliament. So that kind of brings me to, 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 to Clive again. And that is in your history and in, in your understanding of um, kind of fighting for the rights of people who've been labeled in with these kind of broad labels how how at all successful has the the kind of language or the attempt to say what muhammadu said essentially is that you've got laws why don't you apply the laws rather than um create this black hole this space i think clive he he, he cuts off is he gone yeah he's we lost clive we lost clive a little bit so if you wanna have we lost clive Okay. Um, then we're going to go to, to Omar, Omar Degais. Uh, Omar. Uh, Clive is back. Is Clive back? Finally, Clive is back. Sorry, Clive. Always, always. Clive, well, that there's, there's, always you have to disappear, yeah? I know. The biggest I guess, allegation against you, Clive, by all the prisoners, isn't it? Is that you're never there when you when you're needed. It's true. It's true. I'm sorry. It's awful. Well, I I just about heard your question, and so let me just say, I do, it actually just makes me think that there's about a number of you guys that are these fabulous stories. I mean, you were mentioning Mosem, I think, although I got cut off just before you finished. Uh, the whole business about how you and I first met and you were wearing shackles from Hyatt's, which was a company, you know, I, it said made in Birmingham, which is sort of where you were mostly made. And um, the idea that you were wearing these shackles from your hometown in England was just bizarre. And, you know, I got out and I immediately Googled it, right? Uh, because one of the bizarre things about Guantanamo is what's not censored is what you see. 
So the fact that I saw you wearing shackles saying Hyatt's was not classified. And I Googled Hyatt's and the first thing I learned was Hyatt's had made their name making, and I can't even say the word here because it's the N word, shackles for slaves going across to America called N word shackles. And, you know, we ended up um, going up to Birmingham to, um, to raise this with Hyatt's. And there was this band called Seize the Day who had done a song called the Guantanamo Shuffle. And we went outside Hyatt's and we had this flatbed truck and they were playing the song. And we were all dressed up in orange outfits. I still have lots of them should you need one. Um, and we had Hyatt shackles. And the cops were there and we were just raising cane about this for Hyatt's and begging the cops to arrest us. I really wanted to get arrested again. And uh, the cops actually showed good humor, but Hyatt's didn't. And they hated it, hated it, hated it. And they sold out. Within a couple of weeks of that, they sold out because we'd linked them to Guantanamo Bay. And each person had one. While this was on, Shaka, you'll love this. Do you remember your Speedo swimming trunks? Someone just tweeted the whole story about the Speedo swimming trunks. Where I was if, if you can, Clive, I mean, I, this was going to be one of the questions that I wanted to have as a side question. But now that we're here, now that we yeah. are to here yeah. talking about, can we make this, and, and, and here's a pun, can we make this brief, brief, about briefs? <laughs> right. We won't talk about the Under Armour Underpants briefs. The Speedo swimming trunks, I got a letter threatening me with 40 years in prison for smuggling Speedos into Shaka. I thought it was April Fool's Day. But when I worked out it wasn't, I sent a letter to the authorities saying, you know, look, the only place Shaka can swim in Guantanamo is in his toilet. So while speedos should be a criminal offense, um, you should just put a little sign over his toilet that says, we don't piss in your swimming pool, so please don't swim in our toilet. And that should solve your whole national security problem. But it was this sort of madness that epitomized everything. And I know there was a lot about Guantanamo that was not funny, but I think one of the crucial elements, which I appreciated all of you guys who had a sense of humor, was that the people who promoted Guantanamo, they didn't really mind if you and I hated them, but they hated it when we laughed at them. Uh, and so I think that was probably the best medicine we could apply to them. The question is actually is how they took it from me. That's the question. Because I refuse to give it up. I refuse <laughs> to give it up. Even with everybody telling me, listen, man, just give it up. They're going to come and take it. I said, let them take it by force, but I'm not giving it up. <laughs> I mean, guys, just to tell you this, the, the brief of the, let me, the brief part again, this word keeps coming up, uh, is that Shakir had, by whatever means, a pair of uh, briefs, let's an say. Interrogator, yeah, yeah. An interrogator, actually. An interrogator gave it to me. But it was found to be contraband in him. And Clive was accused of having supplied them when Clive didn't. And Clive responded in the media by saying, uh, I deal with legal briefs, not the other sort. Um, but that, that's that. Let's, let's go to, to Omar Dereis. Let's go to Omar Dereis. Omar, um, you know, uh, you were part of, when you came out of Guantanamo, uh, of course, there'd been big campaigns from the, you know, Brighton in particular was a very strong place where the campaign for Guantanamo was taking place. And uh, you had been part of that. Um, when you came out, you joined a, in a tour with us, which was a really historical tour uh, with cage, cage prisoners uh, with a former Guantanamo soldier, uh, Chris Arendt. 
and we traveled up and down the country if you you, you i'm sure you recall well um and we attended universities and spoke then you know thousands of people were turning up uh t- tell me in your in your words how you felt about that what about that kind of response particularly from the youth and younger people that uh, they were looking at and thinking about Guantanamo in this way two sides one story a soldier on one side prisoners on the other side and you're part of this discussion how how did you do you remember that first of all and how do you remember it and what what does it make you feel you okay, said the we'll come back again to you. we'll come back again we'll come back again to you we'll come back to you let me just go to to uh, ahmed um i wanted to ask you something that ahmed i'm sure that you've you've dealt with this and most any anybody could pretty much answer this but i want to ask you because to do this was to do with your position was about physical resistance there's something in guantanamo that maybe a lot of people don't know about or don't hear enough about and it's called the immediate reaction force um and the immediate reaction force is nicknamed the earth irf can you describe to people who have no idea what that is what is the process of being earthed from kind of the beginning to 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 the end uh yeah uh, i would answer that question i just uh, i just want to go back to uh shakir because i forgot to mention and it's very important is a very little small sto- uh, short story that shakir and i were in the same isolation block which means the general and the professor are in the same uh cell block so i want to tell you a little story uh <clears throat> i was I was taken to this cell block and I found Shaker already uh, doing this hunger strike. And Shaker was very very powerful when it comes to hunger strike. You know, I didn't know how he could do it. I was very weak, I couldn't do it, but he was very very strong. And um, they put me there and he they took away everything, you know, the blanket, the 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 isomat and my clothes, everything. And they left me there with nothing in my cell, naked and extremely cold. And he told me that you're going to stay in this position for 30 days. So I was punished for 30 days in the same cell block as Shaker. And it was isolation block. So Shaker was already in a, on, a, on a hunger strike. So when he knew that I had no blanket, no clothes, no nothing, and he says, we have to do something to help Ahmed get his stuff back. So he told the other guys, the, the other prisoners, I want you to eat for like one or two days. He said, just eat. And after those two days, he said, I want you to start a new hunger strike. But he didn't eat with the rest of the guys. So he continued his hunger strike. The same time, he ordered the other detainees to break their hunger strike, eat for two days, and then rejoin him in order to help me get my stuff. So after like four or five days, I got my stuff back. I got my blankets and my clothes back. And for that, I would like to thank Shaka. You know, I, mean, it's, uh, I just wanted to, to bring that back. I don't know whether he remembers that or not. <laughs> and it was a good thing that the general and the professor were on the same isolation block. You know what I mean? So he was leading. On the isolation block. 
So he has the general. So thank you for that. Yeah, uh, going back to um, the Earth team. The Earth team, as you know, it's could be sorry if you could be a little bit brief because we, we want to get sure, on to sure. Q and A after this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the Earth team is, is like, as you know, is five strong soldiers. They come to you, you know, with this anti-riot gear. Before they come into your cell, they spray you with this gas, this uh, pepper spray. If it goes inside your your nose and your throat, you won't be able to breathe. You will start choking. And if it goes to your eyes, you can't see. Uh, and then the, your skin, it burns your skin. Uh, you know that you've been there, you've been, uh, you've been there. And, uh, you know, if you refuse to obey any orders from the, the guards, they had the power and they had the, um, the authority to come in anytime and bring inside your cell and beat you up after spraying you with that gas. And that uh, happens, you know, many, many, many times to me and to the rest of the, the prisoners, as you know. That was very brutal. It's a very brutal process, and it, uh, people often get their heads smashed against the, the metal, against the toilet, uh, sprayed in the face, as you've said. Uh, and of course, there's an, there's, a, there's an attempt to intimidate other prisoners by stamping their feet and hitting their, their feet on the ground before they go into the cell. Uh, and so forth. And of course, they record all of this, but I don't know where the recordings of these are. And I think for, for future reference, um, that will be one of the proofs against the torture and the abuse in Guantanamo. Uh, before we go to, we're going to go to Q&A now, uh, um, inshallah. I'm going to ask just one more question from Mansoor um, before we go to Q&A. And that is, Mansoor, you have, there's been a process that we haven't really spoken about. And many of us have gone back to the, our own countries and for, for whatever reason, um, there were many others who couldn't. Uh, in fact, well, the reasons were because if they were to go back to those countries, they would have been tortured, which is the irony, great irony upon ironies, is that if you go back to the country you came from, you'd be tortured because America held you as a prisoner in Guantanamo and America doesn't help, hold people for no reason. Therefore, you are suspect. You were resettled to Serbia of all places, which is, you know, mind, mind, mind boggles at that. But despite that, you've managed to write a book, you've managed to write articles, you've written one about marriage lessons in in the in guantanamo uh, you you've uh, mashallah finished your degree and most importantly you've joined cage as the guantanamo project coordinator tell me in, as shortly as you can what has been driving you and what have you been doing in relation to this aspect of the resettlements and people who are struggling since they've returned you know uh, brother abdam like uh, it seems as like uh, a restaurant agreement. This is like basically was a restaurant agreement between the United States and the host uh, countries based on secret agreement that we uh, the lawyers couldn't have any access to see what what is was is actually the the the, um, the actual agreement. But uh, 2015-16, when as you know, like Obama failed to close the detention, he tried to free as much as he could from the detainees. And at that time, they uh, issued a law: if anyone accepted by any country, he would be sent against his uh, his his uh, his will. And you know, life after Guantanamo, uh, that's the case I'm working on, and Cage also work on this case, as uh, as you know. Uh, it is also. We call it Guantanamo 2.0, especially for the brothers who end up like having no legal status or facing many difficulties or, or uh, challenges and restrictions to their life, 
you know, believe me, like as uh, one of the cases, I, th I think you remember we work on the brothers who are in the United Arab Emirates. We have been working for years with the department and lawyers are trying to get at least access to the brothers who were there, just have been freed uh, uh, two months ago. And when they arrived, they were they were sent to Yemen without any coordination with their families, with the government, with the lawyers, with any organizations. And some of them, like less than 24 hours, they were kidnapped again and ended up in the Houthi uh, prison. So basically, depend on the the hosting country policy and the 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 the, the govern the, the the system uh, within the country itself. So some of the brothers still live in, uh, they have no legal status, like in Albania, like in Kazakhstan. You know, one of the cases, some of the brothers end up losing their life because the lack of uh, rehabilitation and reintegration, and there is no rehabilitation and reintegration program. My thesis, as a graduated last year, was about rehabilitation and reintegration of former Guantanamo detainees into social life and the labor market. Surprisingly, there was no rehabilitation or reintegration. The hosting uh, countries, especially, you know, like Serbia, like Kazakhstan, like um, Senegal, like other countries, they told us you are here for two years and live, you live under restrictions. The brothers, like for example, in Senegal, after the two years, they were deported back to Libya where they faced jail and torture. And now they have, they don't have any like IDs. The brothers in Albania for the last 13 years, they have, they don't have any kind of IDs. They didn't, they didn't have any like legal status. And one of the brothers died recently in Albania for the last 13 years, left with like status like this. So basically, there is a lot of difficulties and challenges. And I have sent my thesis to the State Department with some kind of recommendation that there should be some kind of reassess of the previous resettlement as part of the closure of Guantanamo and part of the uh, Indian War of uh, Terror. Basically, Brother Mahabam, some of the brothers will live in the Sigma and will live in uh, Guantanamo 2.0. Uh, and if one of, the problem, one of the problems now, we are trying to contact Biden administration, as you as you, uh, uh, as you uh, know, last year, uh, six of the former uh, Guantanamo prisoners sent a letter, eight point plan, urging, uh, urging uh, President Biden to close the detention. So far, we haven't found anyone in the State Department or American government to have contacted because Biden hasn't appointed anyone either for the closure of Guantanamo or for the uh, the transfer um, the, the, of the clear uh, brothers. So basically, a joint cage because cage is uh, the, was the first organization who worked on Guantanamo case, and they have done a lot of work. And I think as former Guantanamo uh, prisoners of victims, it is our duty to work for the closure of that detention. And as you know, Guantanamo becomes simple of torture, injustice lawlessness, abuse of power, you know, indefinite detention, and Guantanamo now is everywhere. Everywhere, wherever you go, it's Guantanamo, and it is Guantanamo just to house Muslims. We see it in China, we see it in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, and other places. And also within some, some of the Western uh, countries, too, they have their own Guantanamo, or at least the concept of Guantanamo. Thank you very much, Mansoor. That's a really important point. Indeed, one of the reasons why I joined CAGE was because prisoners here in the UK who had been detained without charge or trial actually here in, the, in between 2002 to 2005 had contacted me and said, brother, we're glad you're back, but please don't forget there is a Guantanamoization of the prisons of the legal system right here in the UK where Muslims are being targeted based upon the language of the war on terror. And that hasn't ended. And in fact, it's expanded as we've spoken already to places like China and beyond. Um, so our work is cut out for us. 
Um, but what we're going to do now is try to go to the questions. If we've got any questions, we've been here for a while, guys. We've been here since 6.30 and it is now 10 past eight. It seems like just been here for a few moments. Really, it feels like that. And that's just because of the quality of the brothers uh, and all the participants here. And the fact that we've all kind of come together after so many years and it's probably unlikely that this is going to happen again anytime soon. So please do share this. Please do talk about this. Please do make sure that Guantanamo is not forgotten. Please do share our eight point plan. Please do make sure that people are not can't get away with demonizing the prisoners here. We are human beings. We are Muslims. We are people of this earth. We are people of these various nations and we have the right to have our voices heard and to for justice to be done. So please uh, do that and uh, assist the work of CAGE. Please, if there are any questions now, I, I think, uh, can our technical support guys, can you tell us how we access those questions um, or are they gonna be live? So um, right before we go to that, we're gonna play the video once more just to remind people of the eight point plan and then we're going to go to the Q&A. Seven former Guantanamo prisoners recently got together and wrote an open and strong letter to US President Joe Biden calling on him to close down the Guantanamo prison camp. In the letter, the seven, who are all published authors, presented an eight-point plan to close down the place once and for all. This is what they said. All prisoners cleared for release are allowed to go home as long as it's safe. Those that cannot go home, the office for the special involvement must be reopened so that as a suitable country can welcome them. These freedmen must be supported so they can start a meaningful life safe from persecution. The concept of for a prisoner must not exist in a democracy, in a country that respects the rule of law. Those who face no charges must be resettled in a safe way or be sent home their families. Uh, no man should be forced to settle in a country, nor should anyone be sent to a, a place where he will face prison again. Closing Guantanamo should be favorite over periodic review board report. The military commissions should be scrapped and those facing charges should have their cases tried in accordance with the law. Those convicted of actual crime should be able to serve their sentences closer to home where possible. In the letter, the prisoners also say that President Bush opened Guantanamo. President Obama promised to close Guantanamo. President Trump promised to keep Guantanamo open. So what indeed will be President Biden's legacy with Guantanamo? There's no doubting that Guantanamo is a dark stain on the legacy of the United States of America and how it sees itself. And as such, a defender of human rights dignity and freedom cannot somehow maintain Guantanamo. It must therefore be closed. Please do like this video, share it, and most importantly, tag in President Joe Biden when you share it. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Goodbye. Okay, brothers and sisters, we're back. We've, we've got just, uh, I think, about 20 odd minutes, uh, 15 to 20 minutes uh, in Q&A. It's, as I said, it's been a long session. Um, but one that's very worth it. Um, I would say that for myself and I'm sure all the other participants here. Um, my apologies, particularly to Omar. I know that uh, it's been back and forth, Omar, the guys, uh, because your connection, uh, but hopefully you can take part in some of the Q&A. So the first question I've got, and I'm gonna go and try and pick some because there's lots and lots of questions that have been sent, is that um, 
from uh, a human rights lawyer, uh, Margaret Owen, uh, she says, who's in London, that there are, there are around uh, 39 prisoners in Guantanamo 40, she asks, but there are actually 39. Obama and uh, Biden promised to close, but did nothing. How can we act to release these people who've been tortured? Uh, never charged, can we all go on hunger strike? What is it that can we do? That sounds kind of a, a cry of desperation, but what can we do? Clive, tell us, what can we do? Here we go, unmute, unmute without cutting myself off. Um, look, yeah, there are 39 left. There are 15 of the guys are now cleared for release. Um, and, you know, of my remaining six clients, five of them, as of yesterday, are cleared. So that's good. Uh, and the biggest issue is to get them out of there, uh, which, you know, there's, it's now for those 15 guys, not a matter of whether they'll be released, but simply when. So we do need to press the Biden administration to release them. One thing that's important, though, is that right now the Republicans are pretty quiet about the Guantanamo process. And what really ruined the whole thing under Obama was the Republicans created political footballs out of some of the very human beings who were sitting here tonight. And that was what led the weak and cowardly, in my view, um, Obama not to close Guantanamo. At the moment, what we want to do is get as many people out of Guantanamo as quickly and quite quietly as possible, because right now no one's kicking up a fuss. If the Republicans do start kicking up a fuss, that's when we need to get into action. So for now, I think, so for take my three Pakistani clients, you need to make a bit of a fuss in Pakistan, not in America. Let's not do stuff in America, because right now, the American government is actually on our side, but we want to we want to put pressure on the governments who should take the prisoners to up their ante in the work they're doing, and that's why I was recently in Pakistan on behalf of my three uh, Pakistani guys and and um, Asadullah Haroon from Afghanistan. So my advice is to do that. I mean, actually, you don't want to. Uh, remind the Republicans that they can raise their hate game and, you know, make victims of the limited number of people we have left there. Thanks, thanks. Clive. Uh, next question, I'm going to put this you to, Shaka, to you, Shaka. It's a question, it's a very simple question, but it's a profound one, and that is, what is it about Guantanamo that makes the prisoners, the detainees, come out more religious, more connected to the faith? Well, it's a long answer, but I will try to summarize it in, 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 you know, a lot of people, they don't understand. Guantanamo is, is basically built to destroy a human being online. That's the reality. That's the truth. You have to understand, it's, they try to deprive you from everything, from even the sense of belonging to a space. You know, when somebody comes to tell you, move from this point, from this area to this area, or you cannot hang a little handkerchief on, on, on the window, or you cannot, or you have to put the toothbrush in this position, not that position. This is not being done by, by uh, as they call him, Dick and John. This is done by somebody who's this is very a psychologist. smart. This not, is a psychologist. not just any normal psychologist. No, I can't, because what I've been through basically made me open my mind, whoever is doing what he is doing, he's really trying to destroy you to the core, make you feel lost, even inside yourself. And wallahi, the essence of that is you turn 
to the only one that you know he is with you at that place all the time. And that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God. And that's what made all the brothers, I mean all of them, even the one who got weak and they all turned to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They all start to go closer to Islam and learn about our deen, learn the Quran. And the closer you get, the more powerful yourself you feel. You feel you are more, more equipped to face all what they are doing against you as a human being. I think that's, that's, that's the short version of the answer. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree completely. Okay, there's a next question. There is, um, this is, uh, I want to put this to, uh, to Muhammadu, if I may. It is about what was the, 20, the first 24 hours when you released, the first 24 hours when you released, what are those 24 hours like? What does it feel like um, doing basic, simple things that you were not able to do with family, sleeping with the lights on, hobbies, whatever it is, but those first 20, I remember my first 24 hours really, I, and I'll I, I just qu quickly tell you that I got into a car and I drove up and down the motorway. I had no license, I had no insurance, I had nothing, and I just wanted to drive and uh, get that wind in my ear. Um, but but, but let, let me ask you, Muhammad, just give us, give us the, the first 24 hours. So just uh, shortly before I answer your question, I just want to second both Shakir and uh, my brother Clive. And uh, I want to say something that we are here criticizing the regime of Guantanamo Bay that is not bashing American people. American people are one of the most, the nicest people and the most caring people and the most generous people I ever met in my life. This is my personal experience. And they are our best allies if we had, if we want ever to close Guantanamo Bay. Not British people, not Mauritanian people, because American government does not listen to UK people, much less to Mauritanian people. We have to be very practical and talk to American people. They are our best allies. And the other thing, so my dream, I had two dreams. The first dream was to walk a very long street that has no end. Because for those 15 years, I never saw the sun set or rise, ever. You know, and I think all you guys share this with me. And I just want to see it setting and uh, rising. And the other dream, I'm a little bit ashamed to say it, but I'm going to say it. I want to watch so much TV, so much. TV. And I did one thing. I ordered two TVs. And I asked my niece, Najah, I told her, install all the channels. She looked at me and said, I don't know how to use a TV. I said, what? She said, I only know how to use a smartphone. And I said, oh my God, I, I'm so old. You know, people don't use TV anymore. People don't watch TV anymore. And that was my first cue. And <laughs> I also, when they give me a smartphone, first night smartphone, you know, I'm a programmer, a computer programmer. And I, I, know, I know the principles. I start Googling everything that has anything to do with Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> you know, watching other detainees, looking up... Uh, uh, Shaker looking up, uh, Muazzam looking up, uh, all of you guys looking you up and watch your videos 
and what and what. That's it. Thank you again. You know, one of the things that I did also, one of the reasons why I joined Cage, I mean, it's, and Clive knows this, you know, from before, is, was precisely that you come back home and you start to think about immediately, immediately you want to know. Some of you guys, I didn't know you at all before, but I, I only learned about you because I went onto the Cage prisoner sites and saw your names. And it was many years, many years until you were released, including my own friend Shakur. So uh, I, I completely attest that. Here's, a, here's a, a question by a prisoner, somebody that some of us know quite well from the UK who was imprisoned here, first of all, uh, for many years in, in the UK, United Kingdom. And then uh, he, he was held without charge and then extradited to the United States of America and spent some years there. Uh, this is a, his name is Barbara Ahmed. Uh, 